Section 65 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Nater. Chapter 19, The Eve of the Reformation, by Henry Charles Leah. Part 2. The incompatibility between the papal pretensions and the royal prerogative was intensified not only by the development of the monarchies, but by the increasing secularization of the Holy See. It had long been weighted down by its territorial possessions, which led it to subordinate its spiritual duties to its acquisitive ambition. When, about 1280, Nicholas III offered the cardinalate to the blessed John of Parma, he refused it, saying that he could give good counsel if there was anyone to listen to him, but that in Rome salvation of souls was of small account in comparison with wars and intrigues. So it had been, and so it continued to be. The fatal necessity of defending the patrimony of St. Peter against the assaults of unscrupulous neighbors, and the even more fatal eagerness to extend its boundaries governed by papal policy to the virtual exclusion of loftier aims. Even the transfer to Avignon did not serve to release the Holy See from these chains which bound it to the earth, as was seen in the atrocious war waged by Clement V to gain Ferrara in the long contest of John Twenty Second with the Visconti, and in the bloody subjugation of revolted communities by Cardinal Albornoz as legate of Urban V. The earlier half of the 15th century was occupied with the Great Schism, and the struggle between the papacy and the general councils. But on the final and triumphant assertion of papal absolutism, the popes became to all intents and purposes mere secular princes, to whom religion was purely an instrument for supplementing territorial weakness in the attainment of worldly ends. Religion was, in fact, a source of no little strength, increasing the value of the papacy as an ally and its power as an enemy. Among the Transalpine nations, at least, there was still enough reverence felt for the vicar of Christ to render open rapture undesirable. Then there remained the sentence of excommunication and interdict, a force in reserve, always to be borne in mind by hostile states. There was also the supreme authority to bind and to loose, whereby a pope could always release himself from inconvenient agreements and was absolved from observing any compacts while, if the conscience of an ally chanced to be tender, it could be relieved in the same manner. Still more important was the inexhaustible source of revenue derived from the headship of the church and the power of the keys, the levying of the annates and tithes, and the sale of dispensations, absolutions, and indulgencies. These were exploited in every way that ingenuity could suggest, draining Europe of its substance for the maintenance of papal armies and fleets, and of a court unrivaled in its sumptuous magnificence, until the Holy See was everywhere regarded with detestation. It was this temporal sovereignty which rendered possible the existence of such a succession of pontiffs as disgraced the end of the 15th and commencement of the 16th century, such careers as those of Alexander VI and Cesare Borgia, such a catastrophe as the sack of Rome in 1527. Even before these evils had grown to such appalling magnitude, Dante had expressed the opinion of all thoughtful men in deploring the results which had followed the so-called donation of Constantine. 
By the middle of the 15th century, Lorenzo Valla, in his demonstration of the fraud, assumed that the corruption of the Church and the wars which desolated Italy were its direct consequence, and few more eloquent and powerful indictments of the papacy are to be found than the bold utterances in which he warned the Holy See that princes and peoples could not much longer endure its tyranny and wickedness. Remonstrances and warnings were in vain. The papacy became more and more secularized, and as the pressure grew more inexorable, men asked themselves why, if the headship of St. Peter were founded on Christ's injunction to feed his sheep, St. Peter's successor employed that headship rather to shear and slaughter. Papal history, in fact, as soon as the Holy See had vindicated its supremacy over general councils, becomes purely a political history of diplomatic intrigues, of alliances made and broken, of military enterprises. In following it, no one would conclude, from internal evidence, that the papacy represented interests higher than those of any other petty Italian prince, or that it claimed to be the incarnation of a faith divinely revealed to ensure peace on earth and goodwill to men, save when, occasionally in a papal letter, an anxious expression is employed to shroud some peculiarly objectionable design. The result of this, even in the hands of a man like Pius II, not wholly without loftier impulses, is seen in his complaint, March 12, 1462, to the Milanese envoy. All the states of Italy, he said, were hostile, save Naples and Milan, in both of which the existing governments were precarious. His own subjects were always on the brink of revolt, and many of his cardinals were on the side of France which was threatening him with a council, and was ready to provoke a schism unless he would abandon Ferdinand of Naples for René of Anjou. France, moreover, dragged Spain and Burgundy with her, while Germany was equally unfriendly. The powerful Archbishop of Mainz was hostile, and was supported by most of the princes, who were offended at the papal relations with the powerful Frederick III, and he again was at war with the King of Hungary, while the king of Bohemia was half a heretic. The position was no better under his successor, Paul II, who, at his death in 1471, left the Holy See without a friend in Italy. Everywhere it was regarded with hatred and distrust. Under Sixtus IV there was no improvement, and in 1490 Innocent VIII threatened to leave Italy and find a refuge elsewhere. He had not a friend or an ally, the treasury was exhausted, the barons of the patrimony were rebellious, and Ferdinand of Naples openly talked of entering Rome, lance in rest, to teach the Pope to do justice. The Church had conquered heresy, it had overcome schism, there was no question of faith to distract men's minds, yet this was the antagonistic position which the head of Christendom had forced upon the nations whose allegiance it claimed. During the half-century preceding the Reformation, there was constant shifting of scene. Enemies were converted into allies, and allies into enemies. But the spirit of the papacy remained the same, and whatever might be the political combination of the moment, the Christian nations at large regarded it as a possible enemy, whose friendship was not to be trusted, for it was always fighting for its own hand. Or rather, as the increasing nepotism of successive pontiffs ruled its policy, for the aggrandizement of worthless science of the papal stock, such as Girolamo Riario, 
or Franceschetto Cibo, or Cesare Borgia. Julius II, it is true, was less addicted to nepotism, and made and broke treaties and waged war for the enlargement of the papal territories, producing on the awakening intelligence of Europe the impression which Erasmus condenses in such a way as to show how threatening was the spirit evoked by the secularization of the Holy See. In the Encomium Morie, written in 1510, he describes the spiritual and material weapons employed by the popes against those who, at the instigation of the devil, seek to nibble at the patrimony of St. Peter, fighting not only with bulls of excommunication, but with fire and sword, to the shedding of much Christian blood, and believing themselves to be defending the church against her enemies, as if she could have any worse enemies than impious pontiffs. Leo X, followed with a pale imitation of the policy of Alexander VI, his object being the advancement of the Medici family and the preservation of the papal dominions in the fierce strife between France and Spain. To him the papacy was a personal possession, out of which the possessor was expected to make the most, religion being an entirely subordinate affair. His conception of his duties is condensed in the burst of exaltation attributed to him on his election let us enjoy the papacy since god has given it to us under the circumstances the holy see could inspire neither respect nor confidence universal distrust was the rule between the states and the papacy was merely a state whose pretensions to care for the general welfare of christendom were recognized as diplomatic heresy when in fourteen sixty two Pius II took the desperate step of resolving to lead in person the proposed crusade, he explained that this was the only way to convince Europe of his sincerity. When he levied a tithe, he said, for the war with the infidel, appeal was made to a future council. When he issued indulgences, he was accused of greed. Whatever was done was attributed to the desire to raise money, and no one trusted the papal word. Like a bankrupt trader, he was without credit. This distrust of the papacy with regard to its financial devices for the prosecution of the war with the Turk was universally entertained, and it lent a sharper edge to the dissatisfaction of those called upon to contribute. At the Diet of Frankfurt in 1454, and at the Congress of Mantua in 1459, the overwhelming danger to Europe from the Turkish advance failed to stimulate the princes to action, for they asserted that the papal purpose was to get their money, not to fight the infidel. In this, some injustice was done to Calixtus III and Pius II, who at heart were earnest in the crusading spirit, but it was justified in the case of their successors. Men saw large sums raised ostensibly for that object by tithes on ecclesiastical revenues and by the innumerable crusading indulgences which were preached whenever the secular authorities would permit, while no effective measures were adopted to oppose the Turk. It is true that in 1480 the capture of Otranto caused a panic throughout Italy which forced the Italian states to unite for its recovery but scarce was this accomplished in fourteen eighty one when sixtus the fourth in alliance with venice plunged into a war with naples and after he had been forced to make peace turned his arms against his ally and gave fifty thousand ducats to equip a fleet against the republic ducats probably supplied by the crusading indulgence which he had just published 
such had in fact been the papal practice since in the thirteenth century gregory the ninth had proclaimed that the home interests of the holy see were more important than the defence of the holy land and that crusading money could be more advantageously expended in italy than in palestine there was no scruple about applying to the needs of the moment money derived from any source whatever and in spite of the large amounts raised under the pretext of crusades which never started the extravagance of the papal court and its military enterprises left it almost always poor popes and cardinals rivalled each other in the sumptuousness of their buildings never were religious solemnities and public functions performed with such profuse magnificence nor was greater liberality exercised in the encouragement of art and literature paul the second had a sedia gestatoria built for the christmas ceremonies of fourteen sixty six which was an artistic wonder costing according to popular report more than a palace yet this pope so managed his finances that on his death in fourteen seventy one he left behind him an enormous treasure in money and jewels and costly works of antique art we hear of pearls inventoried at three hundred thousand ducats the gold and jewels of two tiaras appraised at three hundred thousand more and other precious stones and ornaments at one million all this was wasted by sixtus the fourth on his worthless kindred and on the wars in which he was involved for their benefit and he left the treasury deeply in debt his successor innocent the eighth was equally reckless and was always in straits for money though his son franceschetto cibo could coolly lose in a single night fourteen thousand ducats to cardinal riario and in another eight thousand to cardinal balue the pontificate of alexander the sixth was notorious for the splendour of its banquets and public solemnities as well as for the enormous sums consumed in the ambitious enterprises of cesare borgia julius the second lavished money without stint on his wars as well as on architecture and art yet he left two hundred thousand ducats in his treasury besides jewels and regalia to a large amount the careless magnificence of leo x his schemes for the aggrandizement of his family and his patronage of art and letters soon exhausted this reserve as well as all available sources of revenue he was always in need of money and employed ruinous expedients to raise it when he died he left nothing but debts through which his nearest friends were ruined and a treasury so empty that at his funeral the candles used were those which had already seen service at the obsequies of cardinal riario when we consider that this lavish and unceasing expenditure incurred to gratify the ambition and vanity of successive vicars of christ was ultimately drawn from the toil of the peasantry of europe and that probably the larger part of the sums thus exacted disappeared in the handling before the residue reached rome we can understand the incessant complaints of the oppressed populations and the hatred which was silently stored up to await the time of explosion thus we may reasonably conclude that in its essence the reformation was due more largely to financial than to religious considerations the terrible indictment of the papacy which ulrich von hutten addressed to leo x december first fifteen seventeen contains not a word about faith or doctrine the whole gravamen consists in the abuse of power 
the spoliations, the exactions, the oppression, the sale of dispensations and pardons, the fraudulent devices whereby the wealth of Germany was cunningly transferred to Rome, and the stirring up of strife among Christians in order to defend or to extend the patrimony of St. Peter. In every way the revenues thus enjoyed and squandered by the Curia were scandalous and oppressive. To begin with, the cost of their collection was enormous. The accounts of the papal agent for first fruits in Hungary for the year 1320 show that, of 1,913 florins collected, only 732 reached the papal treasury. With a more thorough organization in later periods, the returns were better, but when the device was adopted of employing bankers to collect the proceeds of unnates and indulgencies, the share allotted to those who conducted the business and made advances was ruinously large. In the contract for the faithful St. Peter's indulgence with the Fuggers of Augsburg, their portion of the receipts was to be 50%. Even worse was it when these revenues were farmed out, for the banker who depended for his profits on the extent of his sales or collections was not likely to be over nice in his methods, nor to exercise much restraint over his agents. Europe was overrun with pardon sellers who had purchased letters empowering them to sell indulgences, whether of a general character or for some church or hospital. And for centuries their lies, their frauds, their exactions, and their filthy living were the cause of the bitterest and most indignant complaints. Even more demoralizing were the revenues derived from the sale of countless dispensations for marriage within the prohibited degrees, for the holding of pluralities, for the numerous kinds of irregularities and other breaches of the canon law, so that its prescriptions might almost seem to have been framed for the purpose of enabling the Holy See to profit by their violation. No less destructive to morals were the absolutions, which amounted to a sale of pardons for sin of every description, as though the Decalogue had been enacted for this very purpose. There was also a thriving business done in the composition for unjust gains, whereby fraudulent traders, usurers, robbers, and other malefactors, on paying to the church a portion of their illegal acquisitions, were released from the obligation of making restitution. In every way the power of the keys and the treasure of the merits of Christ were exploited, without any regard for moral consequences. Deplorable as was this effacement of the standards of right and wrong, all these were at least voluntary payments, which perhaps rather predisposed the thoughtless in favor of the church, who so benignantly exercised her powers to relieve the weaknesses of the human nature. It was otherwise, however, with the traffic in benefices and expectatives, which filled the parishes and chapters with unworthy incumbents, not only neglectful of their sacred duties, but seeking to recoup themselves for their expenditure by exactions from their subjects. A standing grievance was the exaction of the unnates, which, since their regulation by Boniface IX and the fruitless effort of the Council of Basel to abolish them, continued to be the source of bitter complaint. They consisted of a portion, usually computed at one-half, of the estimated revenue of a benefice, worth twenty-five florins or more, collected on every change of incumbents. Thus the archbishopric of Rouen was taxed at twelve thousand florins, and the little see of Grenoble at three hundred, 
the great abbacy of Saint-Denis at 6,000, and the little Saint-Cyprien of Poitiers at 33, while all parish cures in France were rated uniformly at 24 ducats, equivalent to about 30 florins. As though these burdens were not enough, pensions on benefices and religious houses were lavishly granted to the favorites of popes and cardinals for the pope was master of all church property and was limited in its distribution by nothing but his own discretion thus the people on whom these burdens ultimately fell were taught to hate the clergy as the clergy hated the holy see of all its oppressions however that which excited the fiercest clerical antagonism was the power which it exercised of demanding a tithe of all ecclesiastical revenues whenever money was needed under the pretext generally of carrying on the war with the infidel as early as twelve forty gregory the ninth called for a twentieth to aid him in his struggle with frederick the second and his legate at the council of saint louis forced the french bishops to give their assent but saint louis interposed and forbade it nevertheless franciscan emissaries were sent to collect it under threats of excommunication causing as saint louis declared so great a hatred of the holy see that only the strenuous exercise of the royal power kept the gallican church in the roman obedience he subsequently took measures to protect it from these exactions without the royal assent but germany was defenceless and the papal demands were here the source of bitter exasperation and resistance when in thirteen fifty four his italian wars caused innocent the sixth to impose a tithe on the german clergy the whole church of the empire rose in indignation and was ready to resort to any extremity of opposition frederick bishop of ratisbon seized the papal collector and confined him in a castle while the papal nuncio the bishop of cavaillon with his assistant narrowly escaped an ambush set for his life a similar storm was aroused when in thirteen seventy two gregory the eleventh repeated the levy the clergy of Mainz bound themselves by a solemn mutual agreement not to pay it, while Frederick, Archbishop of Cologne, pledged his assistance to his clergy in their refusal to submit. Despite this resistance, the papacy prevailed, but with the decline of respect for the Holy See in the second half of the 15th century, it was not always able to enforce its demands when at the congress of mantua in fourteen fifty nine pius ii levied a tithe for his crusade the german princes refused to allow it to be collected and he prudently shrank from the issue in fourteen eighty seven innocent the eighth repeated the attempt but the german clergy protested so energetically that he was forced to abandon his intention when in fifteen hundred alexander the sixth adopted the same expedient henry the seventh permitted the collection in england but the french clergy refused to pay they were consequently excommunicated whereupon they asked the university of paris whether the excommunication was valid and on receiving a negative answer quietly continued to perform their sacred functions the university in fact had long paid little respect to papal utterances when eugenius the fourth and nicholas the fifth ordered the prosecution as heretics of those who taught the doctrines of john of poilly respecting the validity of confessions to mendicant friars the university denounced the balls as surreptitious and not to be obeyed and this position is held persistently until the holy see was obliged to give way 
there evidently were ample causes of dissension in the church between its head and its members and the tension continued to increase an even more potent because more constant source of antagonism was the venality of the curia and its pitiless exactions from the multitudes who were obliged to have recourse to it this had always been the case since the holy see had succeeded in concentrating in itself the supreme jurisdiction original and appellate so that all questions concerning the spirituality could be brought before it at the council of saint basul in nine hundred and ninety-two arnoul of orleans unhesitatingly denounced rome as a place where justice was put up to auction for the highest bidder and similar complaints continued through the middle ages with ever-increasing vehemence as its sphere of operations widened and its system became more intricate and more perfect as dietrich of nieheim says it was a gulf which swallowed everything a sea into which all rivers poured without its overflowing and happy was he who could escape its clutches without being stripped even aeneas silvius before he attained the papacy had no scruple in asserting that everything was for sale in rome and that nothing was to be had there without money the enormous business concentrated in the holy city from every corner of christendom required a vast army of officials who were supported by fees and whose numbers were multiplied oppressively especially after boniface the ninth had introduced the sale of offices as a financial expedient thus in fourteen eighty seven when sixtus the fourth desired to redeem his tiara and jewels pledged for a loan of one hundred thousand ducats he increased his secretaries from six to twenty-four and required each to pay two thousand six hundred florins for the office in fifteen o three to raise funds for cesare borgia alexander the sixth created eighty new offices and sold them for six hundred and sixty ducats apiece julius the second formed a quote-unquote college of a hundred and one scriveners of papal briefs in return for which they paid him seventy-four thousand ducats leo x appointed sixty chamberlains and a hundred and forty squires with certain perquisites for which the former paid him ninety thousand ducats and the latter one hundred and twelve thousand ducats places thus paid for were personal property transferable by sale and leo x levied a commission of five per cent on such transactions and then made over the proceeds to cardinal tarlato a retainer of the medici family bouchard tells us that in fourteen eighty three he bought the mastership of ceremonies from his predecessor patrizzi for four hundred and fifty ducats which covered all expenses and that in fifteen o five he vainly offered julius the second two thousand for a vacant scrivenership but soon afterwards he bought the succession to an abbreviatorship for two thousand and forty as bouchard was still master of ceremonies and bishop of orta it is evident that this was simply an investment for the fees of an office which carried with it no duties the whole machinery was thus manifestly devised for the purpose of levying as large a tax as possible on the multitudes whose necessities brought them to the curia and its rapacity was proverbial the hands through which every document passed were multiplied to an incredible degree and each one levied his share upon it besides there were heavy charges which do not appear in the rules of the chancery and which doubtless inured to the benefit of the papal camera so that the official tax-tables bear but a slender proportion to the actual cost of briefs to suitors 
Thus certain briefs obtained for the city of Cologne in 1393, of which the charge, according to the tables, was eleven and a half florins, cost, when delivered, 266, and in 1423 some similar privileges for the Abbey of St. Albans were paid for at forty times the amount provided in the tables. Thus the army of officials constituting the Curia not only cost nothing to the Holy See, but brought in revenue, and its exactions rendered it an object of execration throughout Christendom. The administration of justice was provocative of even greater detestation. The business flowing in from every part of Europe was necessarily enormous, and the effort seems to have been not to expedite but to prolong it, and to render it as costly as possible to the pleader. We hear, incidentally, of a suit between the Teutonic Order and the clergy of Riga, concerning the somewhat trivial question whether the latter were privileged to wear the vestments of the order, in the course of which, in 1430, the agent of the order writes from Rome that he had already expended on it 14,000 ducats, and that 6,000 more would be required to bring it to a conclusion. The sale of benefices and expectatives was in itself a most lucrative source of profit to the Roman courts, for in the magnitude and complexity of the business, mistakes, accidental or otherwise, were frequent, leading to conflicting claims which could be adjudicated only in Rome. The Gallican Church, assembled at the Council of Bourges in 1438, declared that this was the cause of innumerable suits and contentions between the servants of God, that quarrels and hatreds were excited, the greed of pluralities was stimulated, the money of the kingdom was exhausted, pleaders forced to have recourse to the Roman courts were reduced to poverty, and rightful claims were set aside in favor of those whose greater cunning or larger means enabled them to profit through the frauds rendered possible by the complexities of the papal graces. France protected herself by the pragmatic sanction until its final abrogation in 1516 by the concordat between Francis I and Leo X excited intense dissatisfaction and was one of the causes which favored the rapid spread of the Lutheran heresy there. Germany had not been so fortunate, and among the grievances presented in 1510 to the Emperor Maximilian was enumerated the granting of expectatives without number, and often the same to several persons, as giving rise to daily lawsuits, so that the money laid out in the purchase and that expended in the suit were alike lost, and it became a proverb that whoever obtained an expectative from Rome ought to lay aside with it one or two hundred gold pieces to be expended in rendering it effective. Another of the grievances was that cases which ought to have been decided at home, where there were good and upright judges, were carried without distinction to Rome. There was, in fact, no confidence felt in the notoriously venal Roman courts, and their very name was an abomination in Germany. The pressing necessities of the papacy had found another source of relief which did not bear so directly on the nations, but was an expedient fatally degrading to the dignity and character of the Holy See. This was the sale of the highest office in the church next to the papacy itself, the red head of the cardinalates. The reputation of the sacred college was already rapidly deteriorating through the nepotism of the pontiffs, who thrust their kinsmen into it, irrespective of fitness, 
or yielded to the pressure of monarchs and appointed their unworthy favourites in order to secure some temporary political advantage. Thus its decadence and secularization were rapid through the second half of the 15th century, but a lower depth was reached when, in 1500, Alexander VI created twelve cardinals, from whose appointment Cesare Borgia secured the sum of 120,000 ducats, and whose character may readily be surmised. In 1503, with the same object, nine more were appointed, and again Cesare obtained between 120,000 and 130,000 ducats. Even Julius II, in his creation of cardinals in April 1511, did not scruple to make some of them pay heavily for the promotion, and in this he was imitated by Leo X in 1517, on the notorious occasion of the swamping of the sacred college. It was only a step from this to the purchase of the papacy itself, and both Alexander VI and Julius II obtained the pontificate by bribery. So commonly known, indeed, was the venality of the sacred college, that at the death of Innocent VIII in 1492, Charles VIII was currently reported to have deposited 200,000 ducats and Genoa 100,000 in a Roman bank in order to secure the election of Giuliano del Rovere, but Rodrigo Borgia carried off the prize. Under a similar conviction, when, in 1511, Julius II was thought to be on his deathbed, and the Emperor Maximilian conceived the idea of securing his own election to the expected vacancy, his first step was to try to obtain a loan of 200,000 or 300,000 ducats from the Fugger's Bank on the security of his jewels and insignia. That Maximilian should have entertained such a project is a significant illustration of the complete secularization of the Holy See. Under such influences it is no wonder that Rome had become a centre of corruption whence infection was radiated throughout Christendom. In the middle of the 14th century, Petrarch exhausts his rhetoric in describing the abominations of the papal city of Avignon, where everything was vile, and the return of the Curia to Rome transferred to that city the supremacy in wickedness. In 1499 the Venetian ambassador describes it as the sewer of the world, and Machiavelli asserts that through its example all devotion and all religion had perished in Italy. In 1490 it numbered 6,000 public women, an enormous proportion for a population not exceeding 100,000. The story is well known how Cardinal Borgia, who as vice-chancellor openly sold pardons for crime, when reproved for this, replied that God desires not the death of sinners, but that they should pay and live. If the diary of Infessura is suspect on the account of his partisanship, that of Bouchard is unimpeachable, and his placid recital of the events passing under his eyes presents to us a society too depraved to take shame at its own wickedness. The public marriage, he says, of the daughters of Innocent VIII and Alexander VI set the fashion for the clergy to have children, and they diligently followed it, for all, from the highest to the lowest, kept concubines, while the monasteries were brothels. The official conscience was illustrated in the hospital of San Giovanni in Laterano, where the confessor, when he found that the patient had money, would notify the physician, who thereupon would administer a deadly dose, and the two would seize and divide the spoils. Had the physician contented himself with this industry, he might have escaped detection, 
but he varied it by going into the streets every morning and shooting with a crossbow people whose pockets he then emptied for which he was duly hanged may twenty seventh fifteen hundred the foulness of the debaucheries in which alexander the sixth emulated the worst excesses of the pagan empire was possible only in a social condition of utter corruption and as a knowledge of the facts filtered through the consciousness of europe contempt was added to the detestation so generally entertained for the holy see this was ominously expressed in fifteen o one in a letter to alexander the sixth from a knight and two men-at-arms who had despoiled the convent of weissenburg and had disregarded the consequent excommunication under the canon law this rendered them suspect of heresy for which they were summoned to rome to answer for their faith they replied in a tone of unconcealed irony the journey they say is too long so they send a profession of faith including a promise of obedience to a pope honestly elected who has not sullied the holy see with immoralities and scandals End of section sixty six